I'm Vicki Basilega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to share that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting that focuses on best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards more equitable, diverse, and inclusive teams and organizations. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So we definitely know that there are rampant degrees of health disparities in healthcare in the United States. And in 2020, we've had a reckoning with this as we've realized that the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately affected people of color. Well, that really put a light on the fact that people of color have long been subject to healthcare inequities and healthcare disparities that extend beyond COVID-19 cardiovascular disease, depression and anxiety, chronic conditions. And while the prevalence and incidence of these populations does far outweigh individuals that may self-identify as white, there's a lot of factors that contribute to why these health disparities exist in America. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we're really taking a critical eye and looking at what are the root causes of structural and health disparities in the United States. So the focus of my talk today is going to be specifically looking at race-based medicine and the oversimplification of race in practice, but I wouldn't be all-inclusive if I didn't alert you to the fact that healthcare disparities and healthcare inequities are subject to occur in any population that is looked at as historically marginalized in the United States. So when we're thinking of populations that are prone to healthcare inequities, certainly we know that people of color, so individuals that I identify as black, individuals that identify as Hispanic, individuals that identify as an indigenous population or a Pacific Islander, among other underrepresented populations, are at much higher risk of developing chronic disease. As I said, I wouldn't be inclusive if I didn't also just bring your attention to the array of disparities that exist in other populations as well. So certainly one population that remains marginalized in the United States, unfortunately, are individuals that identify as LGBTQIA+. And they have, as well, higher rates of chronic disease, higher rates of anxiety and depression, higher rates of infectious disease as compared to well-centered counterparts. Individuals Individuals that I identify as a person living with a disability has a higher rate of chronic disease as well as less access to the healthcare system, as well as individuals who are older adults or low socioeconomic statuses. So we know that historically anybody that has been marginalized in the United States not only has a higher chronic incidence of chronic disease, mental health, and lower access to care, but we have to think about why do these facts exist. So I just wanted to make sure that I was all inclusive because again, the discussion today will be focused primarily on race. So in order to have a discussion on racism in America and why structural vulnerabilities and structural inequities exist among individuals and people of color, it's important to think about the origins of race in America. So the earliest definitions of race that date back to the 1600s reflected kindship and group affiliation. So race was really more acclimated with cultural aspects and norms than it was with physical characteristics of skin color. In the colonial era, 
area and the rise of capitalism, race shifted to a reflection of physical characteristics and phenotype due to the rise of the Enlightenment and global capitalization. So it became a way that colonists could maintain power and influence and basically marginalize and disenfranchise individuals to justify the notion of slavery in America. This pseudoscience then of race was developed. And over time, this aspect that race predicts biological predilectations for disease has really surfaced, and we'll talk about why that is no longer the case. Really, race is connected to just physical features. Race has never, ever been attributed to a person's degree of athleticism, a person's degree of intelligence, or a person's ability to function in our society. Overall, these ideas were folk ideas that you were utilized to justify pre-existing social norms. And during the Enlightenment, the push for reason prompted the ideology of hierarchy and the differences between species and subgroups. So believe it or not, in the 1700s, there were only four categories of individuals that were identified. And as we know, there's a lot more than four individuals. And interestingly, the term white did not always reflect any European. It was later used as a term to shore up cultural majority against other racial groups and maintain power with affluent individuals. So racial essentialism believes that races are biologically different groups that are determined by genes. So back in 2001, the Human Genome Project was published. We have known for 20 years that socially constructed racial groups are 99.5 to 99.9% identical. So our DNA only can differ by about 0.5%. And what's even more interesting with that is the very little heterogeneity that exists is greater within an individual that classifies as the same race than two separate races. So let me give you an example. We could say a Haitian, an Ethiopian, and an African American are all classified as a black individual. But they are more similar in DNA than if you put two individuals that self-identified as an African-American right next to each other. So it really shows that migration patterns, really, we are all just one race. There are not multiple races. We are all DNA and biologically innately identical. Unfortunately, race continues to be used as a biological reality in health disparities, research, medical guidelines, and standards of care, reinforcing the notion that racial and ethnic groups are inferior while ignoring the health problems of historically privileged groups. So the cold hard truth is that racial differences found in large data sets most often reflect effects of racism, not race. So if we say, what race are you? We really all should be saying we are one race, the human race, and biologically, we are all identical. So why and how do we then use race so pervasively in the field of medicine? If biologically, innately, we are all the same, why is it so important to always include race as a factor when we are describing patients, when we are prescribing medications, when we are justifying treatment plans? Well, the use of race in healthcare has long been done since the 1700s without any really true justification as to why we do use race in healthcare. So some of the examples for how we use race in healthcare is a characterizing factor in the HPI. So many of us, still say 
XY is a 28-year-old white female who presents to the clinic with XYZ. But are we thinking about why we're using race in the HPI? What information is it giving us? We use it, unfortunately, when we characterize or provide that factor in the HPI, it can stereotype or pathologize race. So for instance, negative attributing and characteristics are more likely to be acclimated with individuals who are of black or Hispanic descent in the HPI. So if you have a patient who is white and homeless or black and homeless, they are more likely to have that attributing factor presented in the HPI if they are black than they are if they are white. So it shows some differential communication of patterns. We utilize them in clinical algorithms, and this is something that has long been done. They're automatic practices, but we don't think about what we're doing. Have we ever thought about why we were using a race corrector in, in GFR? Did we ever think about what clinically implications that that could elucidate? Diagnostic tests and treatment decisions. So two individuals who have the exact same lung function, if you have pulmonary function tests and you self-identify as black, you have to be much more ill in order to get classified as needing therapeutic intervention. Racial heuristics and the explanation of health differences and prevalence without context. So just think about it. I, myself, as an educator, I was reflecting on what I used to say in the classroom. And when I taught diabetes, I would say individuals who self-identify as black, Hispanic, or in an indigenous population has a much higher risk of developing diabetes. When you're a student in the classroom hearing that for the first time, you innately think there's a biological inheritance and a biological factor that's putting that patient at risk of developing that disease. That's not the case. Certainly, certain populations that are historically marginalized have a higher risk of developing those diseases but it's not because of any biologic predilectation to develop that disease. It's because the structural inequities that exist that have driven resources away from these marginalized populations and put them at a higher risk of developing chronic disease. So for example, race in the history of present illness. For decades, race has been included in the opening sentence of clinical communication in the HPI and incorrectly conflates skin color with genetic variation. It relies on conventional wisdom that race is a key attribute in clinical practice, and it perpetuates bias. So rather than saying XY is a 28-year-old self-identified black female who presents to the clinic, we'd probably get a lot more information if we knew about the ancestral lineage. So 28LY is a 28-year-old female with sub-Saharan ancestry that presents to the clinic with XYZ. It provides a much bigger picture of the geographical distributions of disease than simply saying race. So there are some arguments against including race. It leads to diagnostic errors. And I'll give you a classic example. This is a very well-documented example of an Indian girl that had come into the clinic very sick with a hemoglobin of five and ran multiple tests, the hematologist looked at the blood smear and said, how could we not diagnose and how could we not identify really early on that this was sickle cell anemia? It was because sickle cell anemia is just thought to be a disease that occurs in one population. 
This has also occurred in the field of cystic fibrosis, where it's thought to be a disease that only occurs in individuals that identify as white. However, there have been multiple cases of misdiagnosis and miscommunication and really missing those diagnoses because we are basically using a unilateral focus to think about the potential differential diagnoses. It leads to differential support. So certainly we know that individuals or chronic health conditions that are more prevalent in marginalized populations don't get the same philanthropic dollars or don't get the same level of NIH grants as other populations do. It diverts care and it exacerbates inequities when used in algorithms and clinical guidelines. It diverts attention from the true causes of inequities. It propagates bias and it reduces an individual to one qualifier. So when you say somebody is just one race, it's characterizing them, it's classifying them, and we are so much more. And then finally, oftentimes there's a disconnect between the reported race and the individual. So oftentimes it's very much common practice for us to self-assume race, right? We don't always ask somebody how they self-identify and what their race is, but how accurate is that collection of race anyway? So this study was done to compare the accuracy of the EHR recorded data on race, ethnicity, and language preference to that reported directly by patients. So the race, language, and ethnicity was directly entered into the EHR by either the MA or the provider. Then, after after that period of time, after that enrollment, there was basically a system that was navigated that there was a live operator who the patient had to call in and basically say, this is how I identify, this is my preferred language, and this is my ethnicity. And several inaccuracies in the reporting of race within the EHR occurred. So patients were more likely to self-report Hispanic ethnicity and African-American race than was reported in the EHR. And 30% of whites self-reported identification with at least one other racial or ethnic group, as did 37% of Hispanics and 41% of African-Americans. But when it was entered in the EHR, it was entered in with one race. There's also racial bias that occurs during case presentations. So again, we know that house staff on rounds or in the HPI often report race information. But this study showed that race information was presented differentially based on your race. So this was a prospective observational study that showed that for each presentation, the data included whether, where, and how often race was identified, whether certain prospectively selected possibly unflattering characteristics were mentioned, and whether any justifying diagnoses were considered. And race was specified more often during presentations of individuals who self-identified as black than those who self-identified as white and race was more often specified predominantly and repeatedly during presentations of individuals who self-identified as black. Among patients to whom possible unflattering characteristics were attributed to, race was more likely to be specified for individuals of color than for those of not color. So really showing that there's differential ways in which we present patients and we think about race in different ways. And the argument here is we just need to be consistent. 
So there's a lot of different avenues in which systemic racism permeates healthcare. Certainly, there's a lot of data and a lot of emerging evidence on the impact of implicit biases and microaggressions on healthcare. The decreased number of minority professionals. So I commend many of you, I know many of you, a lot of programs and schools are really working hard to make diversity a main goal of pharmacy departments. And I think that's really, really important. We still have a lot of room to go. So when we think about the population of the United States and we think about the two largest minorities, black patients and black individuals and Hispanic individuals, they make up approximately 30% of our population. But underrepresented minorities only make up about 10% of our professional healthcare population, which consists of pharmacists, nurses, doctors. And so we have a lot of room to grow in terms of making more space and bigger avenues to pipeline underrepresented individuals into professional roles. The practice of race-based medicine, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then the social determinants of health. So we've learned a lot about implicit biases in the last five years. And biases are a prejudice in favor of or against one thing, a person or group, compared with another usually in a way that's considered to be unfair. Now these implicit biases are formed by our experiences, by our backgrounds, by our families, by our cultures. Now the most important thing to recognize of implicit biases is they don't always align with our explicit thoughts. So again, we may say, I am not racist, but you may have some implicit perceptions that are impacting or causing differential care that you're not aware of. The truth of the matter of is having an implicit bias doesn't make you bad. It just makes you human. We all have them and it's really important to recognize them, but we need to dismantle them to make sure that we're providing equivalent care across the board. So many of us pursue jobs in healthcare because we have an altruistic mission to serve other individuals, but it is very well known that most healthcare professionals do exhibit implicit biases. Now when they're faced with these implicit biases, that cognitive dissonance occurs where you're very uncomfortable with the fact that these biases exist. Now it's okay to have biases, we need to be aware of our biases because we need to be able to ensure they're not impacting the way way in which we provide care. Some of the studies that have been done that show the pervasiveness of implicit biases among healthcare professionals, there was a study that assessed implicit and explicit bias against individuals that identified as Hispanic and Black Americans among primary care providers and community members. Physicians in general showed a pro-white anti-Black bias, and physicians showed a moderate pro-white anti-Hispanic bias. Now this is important to recognize that explicitly this was not the case. They had said, no, these biases, I have no biases, my care is equivalent for all patients. But when they did the implicit association test, it found that there were some implicit associations that were prevalent. There was a study that was done to determine the level of anti-fat bias in health professionals. And this is really important to recognize that this study that was done to determine the level of anti-fat bias in healthcare professionals was done in healthcare professionals that work in obesity clinics, that work with patients living with obesity. And it showed that even these individuals that are working frontline with our patients who are living with obesity exhibited a pro-thin anti-fat bias. 
And then characteristics significantly predictive of having that implicit anti-fat bias was being male, being older, having a positive emotional outlook on life, weighing more, and having friends who are obese. Another study was done to examine providers' explicit and implicit attitudes towards individuals that I identified as lesbian or gay. Among heterosexual providers, implicit preferences always favored heterosexual individuals. And among implicit preferences for heterosexual women were weaker than implicit preferences for heterosexual men. And among all other groups, explicit preferences for heterosexual versus individuals that identified as LGBTQIA were weaker than implicit preferences. And then finally, the impact of living with disability. So this was an interesting study where really kind of looked at what individuals aspects and perceptions were of individuals living with a disability, and providers' explicit attitudes indicated little prejudice. Their implicit attitudes revealed that they preferred individuals who were considered well-bodied and abled individuals. It's important to recognize our biases because there's a lot of data that shows that providers who exhibit bias are more likely to be less supportive of patients, spend less time with patients, exhibit less of a focus on thorough clinical decision-making, exhibit a higher risk of burnout, possess negative interpersonal relations and behaviors towards patients, not refer patients to specialty care, and have compromised the overall quality of care they deliver. And this has been very, very well documented that individuals and people of color have less referral to specialty care even when the presentation is exactly the same of somebody whose counterpart is a white individual. Now, from a patient's perspective, what are the consequences if you experience bias or discrimination? Now, discrimination is starting to be looked at as a social determinant of health. That if you have been historically discriminated or stigmatized in the healthcare system, you are less likely to achieve your optimal health status. When individuals experience discrimination or stigmatization in a healthcare encounter, they overall have less patient satisfaction less adherence with provider recommendations because there's more mistrust of that system and those providers. There's less confidence in the treatment plans and clinical decision-making, the lack of follow-up or use of the healthcare system. They postpone patient access to care and overall have higher morbidity and mortality. So when we look at health outcomes, what does this look like? And it is, again, very unsettling because a lot of evidence suggests that, again, many of us go into healthcare because of an altruistic mission. But when we think about the institutions in our society that stigmatize and discriminate patients, healthcare is considered sometimes to be number one. Because when you think about access to care, less quality of care with certain insurance plans, understanding and health literacy, it really does marginalize and discriminate against certain populations. So what are the effects of bias and systemic racism on overall health outcomes? Certainly, we know that black individuals are undertreated for pain, not only relative to white patients, but relative to World Health Organization guidelines. So many of you may have heard this notion that there was this obviously very unfounded thought that individuals who identified as black had higher pain tolerances because of less sensitive nerve endings than other patients. And so historically, it's led to less analgesia during childcare and childbirth for these individuals, less analgesia 
anesthesia and anesthetics during invasive procedures, and even in 2016, so six years ago, those pervasive attitudes existed among healthcare providers. And so it shows that bias still does exist. And whether well-intentioned or not, or malintent, it's causing a major negative impact for our patient care. Individuals of color are more likely to be blamed for being passive with their healthcare and not active. Hispanic patients are less likely to receive pain medications and when prescribed, they're prescribed lower doses. Individuals who identify as black are less likely than white patients to receive evidence-based care for stroke, myocardial infarction, and heart failure. And that is even if you take out the socioeconomic status and all of that is accounted for, Individuals who self-identify as black are less likely to receive quality care. Physicians are less likely to treat suicidal ideation in elderly patients. Women are three times more likely to be referred for total knee replacement than men. And physicians with disabilities have felt compelled to work hard. So basically just showing again that any type of marginalization impacts the care that you get. So really important to think about the big global threats of implicit biases. So obviously we've discussed the patient care, the admissions processes into pharmacy school, into medical school, into pharmacy residency. So thinking about implicit bias training, there was a study done at the University of Minnesota four years ago that incorporated implicit bias training into all of their admissions procedures. And the following year, they had the most diverse class so it shows that it does work. Promotion, hiring, growth opportunities, so making sure that we're bringing individuals to the table, making sure that we're accounting for diversity, and really making sure that we're pipelining individuals who are underrepresented into our workforce because we do know that certain populations prefer to go to providers that look like them. They just have more trust and comfort, so we need to respond to that charge. So it's important to incorporate implicit bias training because we know that implicit bias is pervasive. We want to use implicit bias assessments appropriately and know how to interpret results and really apply those techniques for mitigating the effects of implicit bias. And like I said, it is something that doesn't make you bad, it simply makes you human. Certainly in the last several years, we've been told a lot more about the social determinants of health as a factor in predicting somebody's health status. And so oftentimes we use this word health equity. And oftentimes when we think about health equity, health equity is thought to think about access to care typically. But health equity doesn't mean access to care. Health equity ultimately means the potential for an individual to achieve their optimal health status. And the optimal health status is going to be based upon the social determinants of health. Now, when we think about genetics, ancestry, social determinants of health, it's becoming more and more prevalent and more and more elucidated that social determinants of health are probably far more important in predicting disease than ancestry and genetics are. So some of the social determinants of health that I've listed up here are the conditions in which we work, we live, and we learn. Discrimination, so individuals that have been stigmatized or experienced discrimination in the healthcare encounter are less likely to achieve their optimal health status. Individuals that don't have the appropriate access to care, utilize the healthcare system in the way intended, have the same level of education, don't have the same socioeconomic status, don't have the same opportunities for housing, community resource, access to jobs, transportation, public safety, and it goes on and on. 
Every year, every couple months, there's new social determinants that are added to this. And now there's a huge push in climate change because we know that the effects of climate change are also more likely to negatively affect the chronic health of individuals who are marginalized. And so it's really important to think of that as a social determinant as well. There's been a lot of research that has been done to predict which social determinant is most predictive of health status. And while often individuals would think it's healthcare access, the most predictive social determinant that has been shown in many studies is the ability for an individual to own a house. Because if they own a house, they probably have some type of job, they have probably some type of financial security where they're able to have a certain amount of health literacy and utilize the healthcare system in a specific way. It's important for us to think about the social determinants and why the resources and allocations of resources are the way they are. And to think about that, we have to think about the levels of racism and the structural and systemic vulnerabilities that exist in our society. So there are certainly different levels of racism that exist in our society. I want to preface this with saying explicit racism should not have a place in our society. So these are the slurs, these are the overt negative stereotypes, these are the overt hate crimes that occur and certainly no place in society. Implicit racism also does not have a place in this society, but it's much, much harder to combat because it's woven into the fabric of our institution. So structural and systemic racism are the patterns of racism that have occurred over years. They're due to the facts of segregation. They're due to the facts that people of color weren't able to purchase houses after World War II because they weren't given loans from banks. So it's redlining, it's segregation, it's educational segregation. Then there's institutionalized racism. Institutionalized racism are racist patterns and systemic patterns of racism that exist among institutions. So the justice department, police force, and again, the healthcare institution, which is thought to be one of the most discriminatory institutions in the United States. Interpersonal racism, which most often presents between individuals as interpersonal biases and implicit biases. And then finally, internalized racism, where we have our internalized thoughts and individuals who are vulnerable or have historically been subject to being disenfranchised start to have those beliefs about their own self. So a good example of structural racism is in my backyard. So my hometown, which I'm very proud to be from, is Chicago. And I will say, though, there is a very, very dark side to living in Chicago. So many of you may have visited our famed Magnificent Mile in Streeterville, which is an area that's about 90% concentrated with individuals who self-identify as white. Very affluent, well-resourced neighborhood. You drive eight miles south to an area of Inglewood, which is 90% black, very under-resourced. And the reason that the population segregated is because of redlining patterns 50, 60 years ago. So when we think about the Streeterville area, that's more than 90% of our individuals self-identify as white, the life expectancy is approximately 90 years old. You drive your eight miles south to this under-resourced area of Inglewood, that's 90% population is black, and life expectancy drops by 30 years. It just shows the impact 
of social determinants and the resources and the allocation because a matter of eight miles, there's a disparate life expectancy of 30 years. So we have to do better in making sure that we better allocate resources to those patients and those individuals in need. So one of the things that we do in our society is we use the terms race, ancestry, genetics, ethnicity interchangeably without really thinking about what these mean. What is race, what is ancestry, what is genetics, and what should we be using then to predict disease? Race is simply your phenotypical physical characteristic color of your skin that you self-identify as. Nobody should be telling you what your race is. You should be self-identifying the race that you belong to. Your ethnicity, it's your cultural norms, your behaviors, the aspects of your family, of your culture, of your background that give rise to the experiences that you live. Your ancestry is one of the more important facts and aspects in predicting disease. Ancestry is looking at your lineage, your geographical lineage of where you came from. So going back to what I said, looking at race just says a black patient has a higher risk of sickle cell anemia. That's not necessarily the case. But when you say a patient from sub-Saharan Africa has a higher risk of sickle cell anemia, you're giving a lot more detail and a lot better picture of what puts that patient at risk. And then finally, genetics. So your genetic admixture, your makeup that predicts disease. So here, really thinking about what we're reporting and what we're looking at. Really thinking again that race doesn't biologically differ between any of us. So we really shouldn't be using race as a predictor of disease. We should be thinking about ancestry and our genetics when making treatment decisions. And this just shows that race versus ancestry. Again, the popular classifications of race are based chiefly on skin color with other relevant features like height, eyes, and air, but physical differences appear on a very superficial level and shouldn't be used as the basis for predicting disease. So we talked about structural racism in healthcare. So then now putting this all together, what came first, race or racism? So there's this really great thought, because I think we often think about racism is an aspect of race, but there's this really good quote from this ardor that says, actually, race is the son of racism. So when we think about 300 years ago and trying to keep power with certain populations, that is what developed this unfounded concept of what race is. And the consequences of race-based medicine is it promotes racial stereotyping, it reduces research into biomarkers that are predictive for disease. It moves efforts away from identifying and focusing on the social determinants. It condones false information about different ethnicities and the dangers are very, very problematic. So your question probably is, well then how should I practice? Like knowing all this information, what kind of approach should I take? Well, we certainly know that we don't wanna take a race-based approach to practice. We don't want to take a race-blind approach to practice, because if we take a race-blind approach to practice, we're not looking at the social determinants and the structural inequities because of the patterns of discrimination and racism in America. So we really need to take a race-conscious 
approach. So when we're thinking about, you know, that first year pharmacy students that's sitting in the classroom and I'm telling them hypertension has a higher risk of occurring in an individual who self-identifies as black. It's because of the social determinants and the resources and allocations and structural inequities that exist that has risen this chronic disease in that population. So context is everything. And the bottom line is if we simply ignore race, we will fail to call out inequity. But on the other hand, using race too often creates inequities, like the practice of race-based medicine, by directing more attention to individuals of power. And this is just taking directly from JAMA, and it says race and ethnicity have no biological meanings, but they have all but contested social meanings, and it's important to report race and ethnicity, but really using it in a context is very important. So then, how should you report race? So trying to move away from avoiding race as a racial descriptor in the HPI, there's more and more guidance that says race should always be obtained by asking the patient, what race do you identify as? And race should be incorporated in the social history because it's a social construct. So that's where a lot of organizations are going in terms of their guidance as to move it away from the HPI. And include it if it's necessary. And think about the structural vulnerabilities that you can include that may be much more telling for a patient. So rather in your HPI than saying AA is a 29-year-old Hispanic male, you'd probably get a lot more information if you said AA is a 29-year-old male who comes from Guatemala who is Spanish-speaking. And that tells us a lot more of the structural and the systemic vulnerabilities that are going to affect the outcome of our treatment. So practicing in a race-conscious manner, question race-based analytics. Many of us still use them in practices. I encourage you to think about you know, where your race-based algorithms are being used and if you're using them historically. At the medical center that I practice, Rush University Medical Center, we removed the MDRD as part of our GFR estimation. We are using CKD-EPI. We have removed the race-based hypertension recommendations from JNC8 because they are not well-founded in data, and now we are going towards removal of race in the consideration of pulmonary function tests for diagnosis of lung disease. Reconsider the manner in which you present patients rather than classifying by race. Consider indicators of structural vulnerability. Distinguish race and ancestry. Don't narrow diagnosis or assume management on the basis of race. Ensure treatment plans are culturally inclusive. And in identifying diagnosis and treatment of disease, use a combination of factors that are going to predict disease. And one thing to kind of think about when we're kind of concluding up is thinking about having discussions on racism with your patients. It can be very uncomfortable, but as I had mentioned, about 20 to 30 percent of individuals have reported perceived racism or discrimination in a healthcare encounter, and it does negatively impact care. So there are a variety of structural competency tools out there to understand the impact of racism on well-being. And then thinking of ourselves as educators, as preceptors, as residency program directors. How can we modify the cases that we use for teaching and learning? 
Are we making sure that we are using inclusive cases? Are we making sure that we are including all kinds of patients from all types of backgrounds in our cases? Are we making sure in our teaching materials that they are showing representation of people of color, of individuals. There's a lot of data that shows that dermatologic conditions look different in people of color than they are in individuals that self-identify as white. However, only about 5% of the images in dermatologic casebooks are thought to be of people of color. So really thinking about inclusivity in our teaching materials making sure that there's diversity and balance in our resources, and certainly training programs where you're thinking about preceptor and resident development and diversity within the RAC and the interview groups. And when I'm saying diversity, I'm not just saying, you know, cultural and ethnic and racial diversity. I'm talking about diversity of all types. And then thinking about how we present race in the preclinical years, so our didactic years, you know, using genetic ancestry and moving away from using race as a predictor and thinking about genetic ancestry and lineage as more important in predicting disease. Avoid outdating terms. And there is a really great article if you're wanting to know what those outdated terms are from JAMA. It's called the Updated Guidance on Race and Ethnicity. And it talks about specifically what terms should be used and what terms to avoid. Use terms that identify societal norms and standardize our language in general. And making sure we're contextualizing what we teach. So as I had mentioned, giving that example of that patient living with hypertension who is Hispanic, why do they have a higher risk of developing hypertension? Well, it's not because the Hispanic ethnicity predicts or the Hispanic race predicts disease. It's because of the social determinants and the inequities that exist. And then really continuing down the evidence-based medicine pathway. So thinking about why does the true disease burden, why is it so disparate between different populations? And let's just not oversimplify race. Let's think about our patients in more complex manners. So how do we work towards inclusion? Making an overall cultural shift, implicit bias training, increasing representation, faculty staff trainings, consider going gender neutral, consider asking individuals when they come in for orientation, what are your pronouns? So that they don't have to dispel anything that is out there and they're knowing that they're coming into an inclusive in, uh, an area. Provide teaching materials, consider application process, seek to address the underrepresentation of minorities, celebrate diversity of individuals, holiday celebrations. I always say that like this is hard to do when we work in hospital settings where we have to staff every day and we have to make sure you know we're not closed for certain holidays but I think trying to endorse floating holidays and not penalizing individuals for floating holidays. I know as a girl growing up, as a Hindu girl, I would have loved to have Diwali off and not have to take a holiday or my mom have to call in for a holiday. And I would love to have those floating holidays. And I think that's a big way to ensure inclusivity. Celebrate, promote diversity of inclusive cases, consider removal of race from the HPI and be an advocate. I'm often asked about what is one of the quickest ways you can improve inclusivity in your workspace. And I think probably the quickest way you can do it is learn how to pronounce everybody's name. Learn how to pronounce everybody's name properly. And that is a very, very quick way that we can endorse inclusivity in our workspaces. Thank you so much for listening in today. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashp.org backslash DEI. 
Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes that feature the ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting Programming for 2022. Until then, this is Vicki Vassalika from ASHB Official, and thank you 